Want to avoid that hellish feeling that you feel whenever you're in the underworld for a period of time and your skin dries up? Well, worry no more, because today's episode is brought to you by Romer Skin Care. Based out of Chicago, Romer launched a work-from-home clean skincare line that covers all your skin needs with three easy-to-follow steps. Why should you check them out? Well, simple ingredients and effective results for one thing. A perfect upgrade if you're washing your face with a bar of soap or that drugstore face wash. Right now, Romer Skin Care is offering our listeners 15% off and a gift with your first purchase by using the code LISTENER15. That's code LISTENER15 on their website, romerskincare.com. Impress your partner and get happy skin. Far happier than the skin we have down here. I'm telling you, this heat does nothing for me. And now, hold on to your fireproof shoes. This is Telehell. Fame is a fickle thing. On one end, you could appear in something that has a long-standing following for years to come, have that one thing be the hallmark of your career, and then use that hallmark to transition yourself to the next thing. Somewhere in the middle, you could have that same hallmark in your career, and then take it easy for a while while collecting residual checks. Or, on the opposite end, you could be smack dab in the middle of that success, and then abandon ship midstream, in the hopes of finding success somewhere else. Case in point... Aside from solid writing, the bulk of the success of the series MASH was thanks to the ensemble cast who performed each week. One of those cast members in the show's early years was a tall, lanky figure by the name of McLean Stevenson who played the stern yet lovably befuddled Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake. What you want to do is you want to walk three and a half grids to your right. What's a grid? Let's see, there's uh, there's two pints and a quart, and there's uh, two hectares and an acre. Who cares, Henry? What's a grid? Not unlike a number of fallen stars before or since, Stevenson thought he was becoming too good for the show, especially with another TV network knocking at his door and offering him a ridiculous amount of money to jump ship. That network was NBC, and the offer was too good to pass up, up to and including guest hosting The Tonight Show on nights when Johnny Carson took a day off, under the guise that Stevenson may wind up replacing him at some point. That's lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's kind of hard acting like you don't love it, but uh, I really do. So, at the end of MASH's third season, Stevenson decided to part ways with the 4077 and with CBS, but not before the show gave us one of TV's all-time greatest gut punches. Lieutenant Colonel, Henry Blake's plane was shot down over the Sea of Japan. It spun in. There were no survivors. Nevertheless, Stevenson moved on to NBC and to other projects under the notion that his star would continue to rise. He thought that not just with his guest hosting appearances on The Tonight Show, but with his own eponymous sitcom, The McLean Stevenson Show. Hello, Mac, you're living on love. It's a way in life. Got a little boy grin. Are you going to be our best friend? Which lasted four months. Then he came back to CBS, giving them another try in 1978 with In the Beginning, where Stevenson played a priest. In the beginning, the beginning we were not a very lively pair. It lasted five episodes. 
Then, just as all seemed hopeless, Stevenson thought he scored a comparably minor hit when he went back to NBC with a cult classic, Hello Larry. Well, hello Larry. You talk to people they for Despite some of the moments it had, and lasting longer than all the other shows he did post-MASH, that one was not only gone after a year and a half, but it also wound up as number 12 on TV Guide's list of the 50 worst TV shows of all time. And no, I'm not going to strike lightning on this one, because despite that reputation, it's still a hell of a lot better than some of the other shows that are on that list. But I digress. Fortunately, thanks to what little momentum Stevenson gained from Hello Larry, and his appearances on the match game, he was able to muster up enough oomph to play the sitcom game one more time. Meet the Kirkridges. They're looking for a place to live, and look what they've found. I am not the gardener. Well, who are you? I am Mr. Rodriguez, and I am your neighbor. Oh! Condo opens tomorrow night. Buenos dias! Would this be the step in the right direction that his career desperately needed? Or would this be the next, and possibly the last, in a long line of failures in the queue for induction in Telehell? Oh my god. While Stevenson is a pivotal figure in this story, he's not the central one. That honor goes to the long-running producing team of Paul Junger Witt and Tony Thomas. If you did so much as blink at your TV set from the early 70s to the present, chances are you've seen a show that they were responsible for in some way. From their early beginnings in producing one-season wonders, Witt and Thomas would eventually strike it big alongside another soon-to-be icon of television, Susan Harris. When in 1977, the aptly titled soap opera parody, Soap, would make its debut. The show was a hit, and it also spawned a spin-off in the form of Benson. From there, the trio wound up becoming a bit of a hit factory throughout the 80s and 90s. Of course, that was with Harris in the picture. Not that Witt and Thomas weren't hit makers in their own right, but it feels like more than a coincidence that some of the shows they did without Harris haven't exactly gone down in history as timeless classics. Sounds like some of the eastern seaboard may have been spared. Really? No, just kidding. <laughs> Still, though, the duo had enough clout in the 80s that networks would flock to them, write a blank check, and ask them to put on a show. One particular network was already knocking, having been in business with them for a while by that point. ABC was the network that aired Soap and Benson, as well as another Whit Thomas hit and future syndication staple, It's a Living. At the same time, however, the network wound up taking on some of Whit Thomas's highly respected but one-season wonder shows, such as I'm a Big Girl Now and It Takes Two. Fortunately, because Benson was the show that outpaced them all, the network decided to take a chance on the team once more in the mid-season of 1983, one where the network's other hits were losing fuel fast. So they needed to up their game for the winter. Huh. This part of the story sounds familiar. Eh, maybe I'm imagining things. Witt and Thomas's production company came across a script written by an up-and-coming writer named Sheldon Bull, who just a couple months earlier created and developed the long-running New Heart on CBS. As long as Bull was gaining traction, Witt and Thomas jumped at the opportunity to stick a red cape in front of him. Bull's next sitcom idea was a simple one, 
two sets of couples from different backgrounds gear up for their own respective life changes. One couple, an upper-class type, was seeking a new place to live after a reversal of fortune causes them to sell their home in the suburbs. The other couple was a lower-class but hard-working landscaper, who amassed a small fortune in his landscaping business, allowing his family to upgrade their home. By sheer coincidence, both of these couples and their families move into the same condominium and inadvertently become neighbors. Sounds like a standard sitcom plot with nothing remarkable. After all, most shows need to have a twist in order to sell a concept. How would this show be different from all the other ones with similar ideas? Have we mentioned that the upper-class couple are a family of wasps and that the lower-class couple was of Latino descent? I don't see this getting uncomfortable at all, do I? Nevertheless, the idea was certainly different for primetime. Or at least, different enough so that nobody got sued by Norman Lear, who practically invented sitcoms about class warfare. Then again, this was the early 1980s. The Reagan 80s. The Moral Majority 80s. The Yuppie 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 Spend 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 80s. The time in most people's lives where, aside from greed being good, everybody was primed to get what they thought was theirs through whatever means necessary. And with people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps as one of the primary characters on the show, maybe the presentation will be more positive than advertised. I'm going to have a grandson who celebrates Cinco de Mayo. Or perhaps every outdated stereotype in the book you could think of will be invoked. Regardless of potential firestorms from certain ethnic groups, ABC bought the show anyway. Now to cast it. While the cast of the show had your fair share of character actors, there are really only three names in this cast worth noting here, with all due respect to everybody else involved. First, in one of the lead roles, Cuban-born actor Louis Avalos, who up to that point in his career was one of the cast members of the beloved Electric Company on PBS. Act? What act? What do you do? What do I do? What do I do? Look at me! Yeah. I put this stupid ball on the dumb wall, and then I try... Uh, uh, to keep my balance. No, don't shake the wall, please. While he did appear in numerous bit parts here and there, this would be the first primetime show he would co-headline, a rarity for actors of Latin descent back then. Another notable name was an up-and-coming teen actor named Mark Price, who you might remember best as Skippy from Family Ties. You know, Mallory, there are two Skippies. <laughs> a good Skippy and a bad Skippy. Would you like to go out with either of us on Friday night? <laughs> no. He would be cast in the show as the son to our pivotal figure in the story. You remember Mr. Stevenson, I hope. Hey guys! I'm okay! I'm okay! With the casting said and done, all that was left for ABC to do was to schedule it. The network had so much confidence in the show and the people involved that they decided to make it a linchpin in what they would call in 1983 their spectacular February. A month lined top to bottom with movies, specials, and the upcoming miniseries, The Winds of War. Kondo, as the show would be called, would become the network's comedic crown jewel that February. And they would pair that show with another comedy that they had high hopes for, an adaptation of one of the most popular British comedies... Oh, no. You can't be serious. But what did you expect to see out of a window in California? Krakatoa erupting? Are you kidding me? Do I really need to make any further comments about this show? I mean, once you pair a show like that up with something that's already been burnt by us, I'm pretty sure the result's gonna be a foregone conclusion, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pack it up for the week. Gonna pack it up for the week. That's it. No sense in beating a dead horse when there's an existing dead horse laying right next to it. Okay? Okay. See you next week, everybody. As I was saying, I eagerly look forward to seeing if McLean Stevenson manages to salvage his career with such a promising sitcom. Which we will do, against my better judgment, after the break. ABC's spectacular February continues. Tomorrow, Anne-Margaret is the woman who spent the last year of her life giving her children away. I want to go to heaven with you, Mommy. Who will love my children. Wednesday, February 16th, it's Don DeLuise in his first special with guests Burke Reynolds, Mel Brooks, and a host of others, Dom DeLuise and friends. Thursday, February 17th, the battle rages on. And if you think they made terrible neighbors last Thursday... Who do you think you are? Her husband. What? This week, they're in-laws. I'm going to have a grandson who celebrates Cinco de Mayo. Then the guests at Amanda's are held hostage. Are you the kind of people this place attracts? If we get out of this alive, I'll kill her. And the chef plans the perfect dinner. Two new ABC comedy hits. Thursday, Amanda's, right after Conda. Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives. Dave's Archives is the premier spot on YouTube where you can get your vintage TV fix, including old commercials and original shows covering classic TV and other TV-related pop culture. Here's just a small taste of what they have in store for you. I love tortilla chips, but they can be a little heavy. But now there's new Sancheros. Sancheros light and crispy because they're made by Pequeños Quibleros. The Keebler Elves introduce Sancheros, authentic stone ground corn tortilla chips made extra thin, light and crispy. Original, nacho, salsa. Sancheros. Sancheros light and crispy because they're made by Pequeños Quibleros. Want to check out the rest of it? Go to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives, or you can visit them on Facebook. Again, search Dave's Archives. And now, back to my punishment for the week. February 10th, 1983. A major snowstorm was sweeping up the east coast of the United States. The music group Men at Work hit the charts with a song Down Under, which we still cannot play because we still cannot afford the rights to it. And at 8 p.m., 7 Central and Mountain, a charming seaside hotel would open its doors for the first time in exactly one half hour from that point. Because before we check into Amanda's, which you can do in our second episode, by the way, we first need to move in to a condo. First things first, I have to give credit to the credits, because if there's anything that a bad or mediocre sitcom can do better than anything else it puts on, it's give us a title sequence that tricks us into thinking that we might be watching something halfway decent. And credit for these credits go to animators Don Beck and Patrick Davidson, who also did custom animated promos for ABC plugging the show, and we'll be sure to link you to some of them in our socials. Also, as is the case with most of Wit Thomas's efforts, the theme music was written by their resident tunesmith, George Tipton, 
But for this one, Tipton got an assist from another survivor of our previous raft. What you hear people saying there will not be hearsay, but there, there, that, that is neither here nor there. Therefore... Yep. Paul Williams, in all his diminutive glory, wrote the words to this theme, but we'll forgive him since he's actually not singing it. That honor goes to singer Drake Fry. Unfortunately, this is just about as far as we'll go when it comes to praising the rest of the show. Act 1 begins with Stevenson and Skippy moving into their eponymous dwelling. God, it's hot. Hottest October since you were born. When was that? Are you asking me when you were born? Why, did you lie to me originally? Two minutes in, and Stevenson immediately thinks to himself, Well, Colonel Blake, you've done goofed again. Sadly, that might be the best of what the show has to offer us in terms of humor. Slowly but surely, the value of the humor will decrease over time as we meet Stevenson's wife and other son. Honey, what's the matter? <laughs> Mom's a little upset. Some of the old furniture won't fit in the new bedroom. What won't fit? The bed. <laughs> on the bright side, Mom. Less furniture, less to dust. You're my strength. And while you're wondering why the family failed to take measurements of their rooms or ask their realtor about room dimensions, or other things that would otherwise eliminate the frivolity, we're reminded as to how Stevenson's clan wound up in this situation in the first place. I miss the old house, too. But we just can't afford it anymore. Well, I just don't understand. When Father left you the business, it was doing so well. People aren't buying life insurance anymore. They're spending all their money on things like food. <laughs> if Father left us a supermarket, we'd be in Fat City. So, before you wonder to yourself if this show has an ethnic stereotype bingo card at hand, we get to meet our Latin family. And hopefully the portrayal of this family is met with the dignity and grace that they deserve. Oh, Maria, when I was just a poor gardener, we were living in that tiny house on DeSoto Street. Did you ever think we'd live in a place like this? Of course, you hated that house. All I ever heard was, someday I'll have my own landscaping business and we'll live in a mansion. I promise you a mansion? This is close enough. Well... With the exception of the fact that Alvaros is playing a gardener, a minus, he's playing one that owns his own business, a plus. So far, so good. The wife seems reasonable, their daughter has a good head on her shoulders. Sounds like the American dream, right? Jesse, I'm not sure I can be happy here. What's the matter now? I've been counting bathrooms. We have four. Good, that's how many I paid for. Four bathrooms? It's too many. It's a sin. It's not a sin. <laughs> a sin is waiting an hour for you to come out. The grandfather is honestly complaining about having four bathrooms? Hell, I'm in hell, and the best we have around here is shitting off the ledge in the hopes that you don't accidentally bend too far back or you're gonna fall off. Also, we only have half-ply toilet paper. Even wadded up, it doesn't work. But enough about scatology. We rejoin Stevenson left to his own devices. Literally, as he not only tries to figure out how things work around the condo, but perhaps he's lamenting to himself of all the bad career mistakes he's made since leaving MASH. Why am I doing this? This is dangerous. I could pay someone and watch. <laughs> With Stevenson all akimbo, we get our first face-to-face -face meeting between him and Alvaros. How does that turn out? Excuse me, senor. Yes, I speak English. Well, it's nice to meet one of you who does. 
Okay, you may not see this, but I can assure you that I'm doing one of those Charles Nelson Riley-esque color grabs where I would then go, I have a feeling the awkwardness is just going to intensify from there. Of course, this being a sitcom, there has to be a way for Stevenson to dig himself out of that hole. Fortunately, Alvaros gives as good as Stevenson gets sometimes better. It was an honest mistake. You are standing out here wearing work clothes, holding plants. And I'm a Mexican. And you're a Mexican, so naturally I mistook you for a gardener. You're an Anglo standing out here in golf pants, but I didn't mistake you for Arnold Palmer. Oh, boy. Maybe some of the tension can be diffused when the men's wives appear, maybe? Something's going out here. Fine. What's the matter with you? James, who are you talking to? Nobody. <laughs> oh, hello. Hello. How are you? Just fine, thank you. Oh, these are lovely plants. I am not the gardener. <laughs> Is there any dialogue in this show that won't result in a possible race riot? They are the neighbors. Our neighbors? That's right. Oh. <laughs> Buenos dias. <laughs> So, yeah, this is pretty much the crux of the show in a nutshell. Hoity-toity people act hoity-toity towards people they only think are lower than them thanks to some preconceived, outdated notions that were even more outdated by 1983. Unfortunately, because of how well the producers of the show did for the network in the past, this show wound up with a 13-episode commitment. So now, we're committed to press on as this modern-day Hatfield and McCoy tale turns into Romeo and Juliet, when both families' eldest children meet for the first time. We're not all gardeners, you know. Excuse me? Your father thought my father was a gardener here. Oh. What does your father do? He's a landscaper. I see. Well, that certainly was a ridiculous mistake. Cute. I try to be. Well, you failed. You want to go out Saturday night? <laughs> love to. <laughs> Let this be a lesson, boys and girls. If you have parents who are insensitive towards other races and ethnicities, date the opposite family's kin and things will be okay. And if you can't tell the sarcastic slant in my voice, congratulations, you're part of the problem. Act two begins with... Christmas! Time out! Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't this particular show air in February of 1983? ABC's Spectacular February continues. So, why Christmas, and why that point in time? That's a very good question! Especially considering that the title card in the established shot says three months later. So that means this was supposed to have taken place in October of 1982. That just raises further questions! I'm only venturing a guess here, but I have a hunch that this was originally made for the fall of 1982, but then got bumped to mid-season after ABC thought that they were invincible or something. It's just about the only way this time warping can make any sense. But again, I digress. We rejoin both families at Christmas, where we have more pointed observations that are usually reserved for drunk uncles. They're Catholic. They get very religious this time of year. The illuminated nativity scene wasn't enough. Now he's got plastic angels and glow-in-the-dark choir boys. Fucking hilarious. Let's see what the more well-adjusted family is doing to prep for the holidays. Again, in February. What is it now? He's upset because there's no piñata. Oh, did you want to hit it with a stick and scramble around the floor for candy? It's for the children. The children are grown. It's a tradition. We have a beautiful Christmas tree here. That's a German tradition. 
So, in case you're just joining us, we've now had jokes against Latinos, wasps, and now Germans. Now I just need either Asians or African Americans, and I can cash in my stereotype bingo card. I just love the wreath on your front door. Oh, thank you. Well, we've had it for about five years now. Some black children were selling them door to door, and we thought we'd better play it safe and buy one. Hey, bingo! What do I win? Oh, boy, a refreshing glass of sand. Hmm, sandy. What do you get for a full card, molten glass? And, for good measure, let's throw some shade towards Christianity, too. I'm Maria, and my husband is Jesse. Oh, is that a nickname? Yes. What's your real name? Jesus. <laughs> hey, Jesus. Man's name is Jesus. But seriously, one would have to try to come up with all the questionable jokes we're hearing on this show. And yes, the producers have flirted with controversy in the past with some of their previous shows, but that was back when there were still barriers to break on TV. Here, in 1983, it's about as subtle as wearing a neon orange hunting vest in the middle of a war and calling it camouflage. People are going to notice, and it wouldn't surprise me if those same people shoot you on sight. Moving on, the family's eldest children are sneaking around the house, almost as though they have something to hide. I can't stand it anymore, sneaking around behind our father's backs just to see each other. Let's get married, then they couldn't keep us apart. They'll never let us get married. They won't let us go to the movies. <laughs> Just then, Mr. Electric Company catches both of them. And it goes about as well as you think it does. Oh, well, hi, Scotty. What are you doing there? Linda and I were just talking. She doesn't hear with her mouth. <laughs> it was just a kiss. I forbid you to kiss that boy. Now come home. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Andale pues a su cuarto. Come on. Well, honestly, Scott, on Christmas Eve. And with this revelation out in the open, I'm sure our two neighbors will discuss the matter like sane, rational, who the hell am I kidding? We just get more borderline ethnic slurs. Keep your son away from my daughter. If you can't control her, it's not my problem. Get off my patio. Boy, oh boy, what is it with you people? One little kiss and you flip your taco. <laughs> and if Hello Larry didn't permanently wreck McLean Stevenson's career, that line just now may have done it. As we fast forward to three more months later, so December, January, huh, February. Okay, I withdraw my earlier complaint about the Christmas time jump. Though, technically, that means this story has now taken place in March of 1983 instead of February, but let's be honest, who gives a shit at this point? As we catch up to the eldest characters in the condo's... sauna? I didn't know there was anyone in here. Oh, that's okay. I don't mind sharing. This sauna's for the whole development. Are you gonna be long? Another five, ten pounds. <laughs> yeah, it must be a thing in L.A. Anyway, we soon find out that the two of them eloped and will pretty much try to spend the remainder of the show trying to keep that a secret. That is, until... Let's tell our parents now. What, are you crazy? Your father will kill me. He'll love you because you're the father of his grandchild. 
Don't worry, they already established that she's of college age. And I'm sure there's an equal chance of their respective parents not to worry once the news is sprung. Fortunately, that's the end of the episode, and we don't have much to worry about. And now a look at the next episode of Condo. Oh, we got a teaser for the next one. Lovely. You'll have it annulled. We don't want it annulled. Were you married by a priest? No. Then you aren't married in the eyes of God. Daddy, I'm pregnant. Oh, God. <laughs> Santa Maria. Linda. Santa Lucia. You slept together? Santa Barbara. Your daughter's pregnant and you're naming beach towns? Well, thankfully, we don't have to worry about this show or its questionable stereotypical dialogue anymore. The show ran up until June of 1983, where it ultimately placed 44th for the season. Stranger still, Kondo wound up actually outpacing its companion sitcom, fellow Telehel inductee Amanda's. And this was thanks to the too-little-too-late decision by ABC to have the long-running Benson to be the show's lead-in after a few weeks. So, where does Kondo get placed in the real estate listing of Telehel? Expect a rather pricey commission on our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. One could say that the show's problems began before the show was even a gleam in Sheldon Bull's eye thanks to McLean Stevenson, whose efforts here mark his fourth sitcom failure since departing MASH, something that turned out to be a long-lasting byproduct of the deal he made with NBC in the 70s, even though the show aired on ABC nearly a decade later, marking a one-two punch, Stevenson's greed, and gluttony for punishment in the hopes that he would be able to do a successful show beyond MASH. Of course, that wouldn't happen were it not for one TV network trying to sabotage another in the process. NBC thought luring Stevenson away from a hit show would cripple it. Unfortunately, MASH wound up thriving and Stevenson continued to look for a lifeboat, thus marking the continuing long-lasting effects of some misfired treachery courtesy of the Peacock. But getting back to the subject of Kondo, Maybe because we live in such a PC world in this day and age, but I kind of find it hard to believe that nobody who watched this show ever complained to the network about the use of questionable ethnic humor, or at least no protests about it that could easily be verified. Still though, the jokes that they did use were wildly outdated, even in 1983, and they would certainly be something to be angry about, depending on who's watching. Considering who produced the show, either Paul Junger Witt or Tony Thomas thought lightning would strike twice in terms of getting people to tune into controversy, like they did with Soap, or because they already had an established hit on the network in the form of Benson that they might thought they could get away with anything, which is a shame because they have an otherwise stable track record if any of their other future shows are any indication. Kondo earns four out of nine circles of Telehel. It was an unfortunate bump in the road for Witt and Thomas, but they persisted. Their company would continue to pump out more hits than misses throughout the 80s and most of the 90s. Sounds like some of the eastern seaboard may have been spared. Really? <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll get to that, we'll get to that. Unfortunately, the same couldn't be said for McLean Stevenson, as this would turn out to be the last time he would ever embark on a starring role on a TV series. He would continue to make various cameos here and there for the next few decades, until his passing in 1996, such as the pitfalls not just of performers, but people who, in many walks of life, after years of comfortable complacency, decides to take a risk in the hopes that their lives would improve. 
Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Not that we necessarily feel bad for Stevenson. Sure, he made a legendarily bad career move, but he still managed to find work. In the twilight of his life, he eventually reflected on his fateful decision to leave MASH and embark on his ultimate path, stating, quote, I made the mistake of believing that people were enamored of McLean Stevenson, when the person they were enamored of was Henry Blake. So if you go out and do the McLean Stevenson show, nobody cares about McLean Stevenson. I've never been able to work with a group that's as talented, or scripts that are as good. I did some terrible shows, but nobody made me do it. I did everything by choice." End quote. That statement is the reason why we may not remove the sins for greed and gluttony, but it can certainly absolve him of his pride. He took his lumps with every show he did after MASH, and he just rolled with it as best as he could, just as billions of other people in the world do on a daily basis. Just not in such a public forum as television. And of course, he's not the only famous face to make a bad career move in their career, and we'll be sure to give those who threw their TV careers away their own day here soon. If I'm bipolar, aren't there moments where a guy like crashes and like in the corner, like, oh my god, it's all my mom's fault? Shut up! I'm by winning. I win here and I win there. Now what? <laughs> Next time on Telehell. In spite of the political minefield we find ourselves approaching this November, a reminder of a more quaint time in the history of American democracy. Florida, Florida, Florida. I honestly believe as goes Florida, we'll go the nation. Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road, and is distributed by Libsyn. Not unlike certain viruses, Telehell is everywhere now. In addition to Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, we can also be heard on Google Podcasts and the iHeartRadio app. Of course, we can also be heard in a number of other places just by Googling Telehell. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and follow our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast.